listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston, and I'm thrilled to have you along. Thanks for joining me. I've got a guest today that's a good friend of mine. We've done some business together through the years. We've grown a really great relationship, and I'm excited to have him along because I think he's going to be able to shed some light on branding. So I want to introduce today my good friend, the CEO and administrator of the Maplewood, a skilled nursing rehab facility located in Webster, New York. Welcome, Greg Chambry. Yeah, hi, Mike. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining me today. I wanted to have you on from day one, but I thought, let me at least get a little bit of an audience going before <laughs> before I bring you on, so that more than just my mom and my wife could listen to you, to what you have to share. Well, I hope I don't ruin it for you. No, I think you'll be just fine. I think you'll be just fine. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation, as uh, I mentioned, and as you know very well, we've done a lot of work together around branding and marketing and so on, and, and you're your facility, uh, the Maplewood, is, is unique in my opinion. I've done a lot of research in the uh, senior care, long-term care market, and um, so I think it'll be great to talk about some of that. Before we get into the branding piece and the marketing piece around the Maplewood, just tell us a little bit about the Maplewood. What is it? And then after that, I'd like to get into maybe a little bit of your story. How did you find yourself in this line of work? Uh, Maplewood is a skilled uh, nursing facility. That's the terminology that's the official terminology under the Department of Health, uh, uh, as they referred in the continuum. And that's really kind of confusing to people. I think there's so many ideations now of caring for seniors. Uh, it used to be just nursing homes and kind of everybody went there. But now there's assisted living, enhanced uh, living, uh, senior apartments, home care, all kinds of stuff. So in that whole scheme of things, we're a skilled nursing facility uh, in Webster. And what that means is we're one notch, if you will, under a hospital, the acute care kind of setting. And that's important these days because hospitals like nursing homes are not what they used to be. Hospitals today, uh, whether you're having a baby or whether you're you know, having a hip or knee replaced, they get you in and get you out pretty much right away as soon as they possibly can because they're paid according to almost like piecework, if you will, by Medicare and the third-party payer. So the nursing home has become what the hospital used to be in terms of recuperation and recovery. Uh, so we, we do both long-term care, and uh, that would be considered when somebody typically aged you know, for one reason or another, needs 24-hour oversight by clinicians, skilled, you know, nursing staff. So we do that, and we do the recovery piece that comes after uh, the hospital now, the acute stay that I just uh, mentioned. And we have clinicians, we have uh, extensive therapy and other kinds of modalities that help people uh, recover from uh, why they were in the hospital to begin with. Uh, So it would be... uh, uh, nursing home to home in that case, and in the you know long term care situation, typically those people stay here for the rest of their lives. Okay, and when you're talking about uh, nursing home to home, is that focused on a certain age group? I mean, can a 32 year old come there and and recuperate and and move on, or is it typically for seniors? Well, again, I got to compare what was and what is. Um, you know, when I when I when I first started. We wouldn't get a 32-year-old, but we might get a 62-year-old. And, and these days, unless they have a lot of other things going on, we don't see anybody in their 60s for sure. 
hardly anybody these days in their 70s. It's mostly 80s, 90s, and and now into the 100s because there's so much uh, community care out there with the advent of home care and, you know, there's visiting docs now. There's therapies uh, that come to your home and, and bring things to your home. In the age of information technology and the evolution of wireless and cell phones have brought about monitoring in the community by the hospital, by the uh, outpatient clinic, by the doctor that they can do uh, to kind of keep track of you in your home and make sure things don't go south. Um, Mm. So with all that, they're able to go right from hospital to home when you're I guess I'm being a little broad about this with a broad brush, but 60 and below, they really look to to home care, home services to take care of that piece. Sure. And these folks that are going from hospital to home or hospital to nursing care and then home, these are hip replacements, knee replacements typically. It's where someone's had uh, a surgery that they just need some time and, and therapy to get whole so that they can get on with their life usually. Yeah, um, we uh, a number of years ago we we really for probably ten years we specialized in uh, ortho rehab and we still do, but we just don't do as much of it because of people going home and the limited number of cases out there um, that are available. <clears throat> it was for a while. Uh, they even, if you look around town, they built what they call transitional care units because everybody was going from the hospital to the to the nursing home and with the advancement of cardiac care um, and ortho uh, situations, the hardware, if you will, that they're implanting in people has gotten a lot better over the years and the the ability uh, for all the reasons I already mentioned, you know, people are going home now. So those transitional care units that were huge aren't needed anymore. You know, the population is a lot smaller going or needing skilled nursing care for rehab. This is uh, interesting, too, in the sense that, if I recall, the Affordable Care Act had an impact on that, too. And I don't want to get too much in the weeds with all the the uh, technicalities, but that was one of the things, I think, too, that impacted the rehab market because the ACA kind of mandated a different approach to how people were rehabilitated and how, they were, and how organizations like yours or other care facilities were remunerated for that. Is that, is that accurate? They started down that road cautiously um, with the Affordable Care Act. That whole Affordable Care Act, and again, I can't speak for the acute care side, the hospitals. They, I think they had a, a, a lot harder road to hoe, um, but it was a little deer in headlights, if you will, for the whole medical community because we didn't know, I'm saying we, but... Uh, we didn't know if it was going to stick or not, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, don't, I still don't know whether it's <laughs> going to stick or not. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of what they call demonstration projects or models that um, basically, I think, in my opinion, are, are on the right track. Um, because, again, just taking this down to a, a real basic level, if you looked at the medical system before the Affordable Care Act and, and the tenants that went along with that is... Nobody, nobody made money until they did something. Okay, that's the basic tenet of it. Whether it's you call an ambulance, you get a ride, you go to the doctor's office, you have a procedure, you go to the hospital, you have a procedure. When you think about it, somebody had to see somebody, somebody had to do something to the patient, somebody had to 
lay their hands on them in some way, shape, or form, and all that promoted service. It promoted so fee-for-service. Yeah, fee-for-service is the traditional name for it. And it, when you think about it that way, it tends to escalate the whole system. And I won't, we won't even get into lawsuits and, and, and the fear of docs if they don't do this test that they're going to get sued and, and so forth. There's all that that goes with it too. But anyway, so historically it's been a fee-for-service model. And with the Affordable Care Act, it really turned that model on upside down and said, you, know, you get one price uh, again, um, what they call DRGs in the hospital. You might, your uh, listeners might have heard of DRGs where they put a price tag on a situation and say, basically, this is all you're going to get. So you operate within that price, and and it really turns the thing on its head and encourages people to be as efficient and effective in the least period of time that they can with that uh, price tag that's assigned to that particular situation. Um, so when you think about it that way, you can understand why the hospitals have become you know, basically surgical suites, and they want to get you in and get you out um, as rapidly as they can, because if they can get you out a day earlier, that's money that's that's saved, and that's money they keep. Um, hmm. So that, I think, in its most basic form can, can at least, from a philosophical standpoint, give you an idea of what's driving um, the system. Well, this kind of brings up this whole opening, uh, you know, I, I, it kind of pushed us right into the technical aspects of what you do. Sorry. But I think this, op- no, don't apologize. I, I think this exposes an aspect, you know, the Maplewood is, is a privately owned nursing home. This is not a state run. You're not getting state money, you know, for the most part. You're a for-profit business. And unlike a lot of for-profit businesses, you're operating in a highly regulated uh, industry and you're you're kind of rubbing shoulders with very big entities that are not for profit. So, for instance, I think of um, like my own you know marketing consultant. I might bump up against ad agencies and videographers and you know business owners like yourself running private companies. But I'm not competing with the government. I'm not highly regulated. What's it like to be in a business where you're highly regulated and yet you have to be for profit? Is it that that's got to be a tough dance? It is in a in a small organization that we have. We have uh, we can take care of up to seventy four people, which is considered um, you know pretty small when you look at uh, other larger you know church based homes, uh, the Jewish home, uh, St. John, St. Anne's. There are three, four, five hundred beds compared to seventy-four. So there's a lot more scale there that they're able to have, you know, people, uh, a lot more employees who specialize in various things. And um, you know, in a small organization uh, like ours, uh, we all have to wear a lot of hats. And so you can imagine how much reading and studying and and having our ear to the ground and being involved in you know, the business, it's really a lifestyle that you have to take on, whether you're sure. director of nursing or administrator, that kind of thing, and really live live it to be able to cover all the bases. So, you know, that makes it, that makes it tough. But I would say doing the right thing and, uh, you know, our kind of creed or my thing that I always tell new employees coming in, 
if it's not good enough for your mom or dad, don't do it. Mm, <laughs> sure. Typically, you know, kind of takes you down the, the right path. And, um, you know, it, 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 if you apply that philosophy to it and then compare it against any regulation, you usually, you know, wind up on the right side. So, um, you know, again, maybe I'm simplifying it too much, but it's worked. I hope that kind of answers the question a little bit. It, it does. And I think the idea of simplification is probably critical in your situation. You know, when you're, your employees, you yourself, having to deal with so much regulation, making sure you're staying in the good graces of the, the state and the federal authorities, then you've got all your customers and, and your residents that are your patients that you have to take care of. And, there's so, and then you've got your competitors that you have to keep an eye on. It's very complex. And uh, so I, I almost think you have to keep it simple. Otherwise, your team, you, you know, they don't know, like, where do I focus? How do I keep everybody happy? But if that, that's such a great concept, it's like, just what would you do for your parent? What would you do for your mom and dad? And usually that is better than the regulation. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and, so. I, and, and I think you hit it on the head, too. I've, I've often heard, I don't know who said it, but... Uh, the mark of a good manager is taking a very complex situation and, and making it simple. Um, mm. and, and, you know, I think folks who, who look to you for, you know, as the owner, as a CEO or whatever, are, are looking for uh, leadership um, that they can follow. And, you know, in this business, you really get caught up between uh, owner and, and regulator, right? I mean, who, <laughs> who's the boss? And, yeah. and I've seen a lot of organizations <laughs> go down the wrong path. Yeah, they're, they're trying to serve, uh, you know, three masters, the, the CEO, uh, the regulator, and the, and the patient. So who, who's the boss, you know? Sure. It, it can get real confusing unless you um, kind of take it on yourself and, and eliminate a couple of those choices and, and, and tell people, Look at I'll take care of the, these other pieces. Your boss is the is the resident and the family member. So the Maplewood was founded uh, by your grandparents in the forties. I think is that correct? 40, 43, 47? Yeah. Forty three, forty seven. Forty yeah, forty seven. They were uh, forty seven. Okay, and so this is a multi generational. Your father and mother then owned it and ran it. And then you've owned it and run it since I, th I think 1998, so about 21 years. You've yeah. you've been the owner and the administrator. So it would be easy to assume. Well, well, you just kind of fell into this. You know, you woke up uh, one day and your family owns a business, and so you, it was just logical. But you're one of four kids, and um, you know, I think a lot of people that are not in uh, heritage businesses don't realize like it's not a foregone conclusion that the kids will work in the business. So what? You know, what was your journey to becoming an entrepreneur? When did you, was there a moment when you realized, you know, were you like the prodigal son and went and worked in corporate America for 20 years and then decided to come back? Or did you always know you wanted to be in business? What was that process like to become an entrepreneur for you? Well, Mike, I think there was a, there was a couple pieces to it. And the, and the first and the most important piece um, to me came really early in life, uh, you know, as you mentioned, my mom and dad, uh, it was their own business. They ran their own business. So, um, you know, sitting around the supper table, you saw what was happening. You saw what it was like to own a business. You, you saw the commitment. You saw the, uh, the work that had to go into that. Um, so that was one piece. And, 
you know, that encouraged myself and my brothers and my sister to, to kind of be like that. I mean, the, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, they say. And that's true <laughs> because you're, you're exposed to that all the time. And we all had, had things going on. Um, you know, I had, I had paper routes, several of them. I had a, a lawn service and, and landscape type business from the eighth grade to when I left for college. And uh, I'm going to mention to you before that that taught me some of the best lessons that uh, I ever learned about who I was and, and, and what I wanted to do. And those were just confirmed later when, you know, I I went and I worked for a couple people, a couple organizations, a couple people. And um, I, I kind of learned real quickly that, you know, I'd, I'd be jumping around a lot. They say millennials go from job to job. I I would probably break the record from that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how long I could last anywhere, but, uh, you know, they told me that I really, whether it was, you know, working in the family business or, uh, going to something else, it was important for me to, uh, to do something on my own. So, so it sounds, uh, it sounds like you had the entrepreneurial DNA, but it's not like you woke up one at 13 years old and said, I'll never work for anybody else. You had the entrepreneurial DNA, but you dug in, you had, you held positions, but early on you realized, okay, I, I, there's an itch that I've got to scratch a little differently than working for someone else. I mean, those are my words, but is that, is that kind oh, of the process? Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, um, <laughs> this, this interview is about you, but I'll just, I'm resonating with what you're saying. I, sure. uh, same thing, you know, before it was, it's cool now. Like if you stay anywhere more than two years, I guess everybody looks at you like what's wrong with you. You're, you're getting stale. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you and I are similar generations. When I was growing up, it was like, you're supposed to keep a job as long as you can. And my, my poor wife, when we got married, you know, a year and a half here, two years there, I just jumped and jumped. And, um, and I was successful always, but I sat with a recruiter once and she looked at me and said, I'm not going to place you anywhere. And I was in my <laughs> early thirties at the time. And I said, what are you talking about? I had a great experience, great results. And she said, you'll, you'll only stay for two years and you'll move on. She, you need to own your own business. I mean, she kind of, it was this kind of aha moment. She looked inside my head, I think, and told me what I needed to hear. But she said, I, you'd be fantastic. There's no question, but you just need to have your own business. And that was kind of the beginning of my journey to, into entrepreneurship. If you heard of somebody leaving Kodak or Xerox, you'd wondering what was, what was yeah, wrong it's with a the scandal. Person. Like, what are you nuts? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. It's, I only bring up my story because it just seems so common amongst entrepreneurs that, you know, they jump, jump and realize, okay, I'm essentially unemployable. I'd be great. Anybody hired me, but I get bored. And so I need to do my own thing. That's good. So when you joined the company, you took over in 1998. Uh, I know you've radically changed the business and I know that the nursing home and healthcare, you know, whole industry has changed significantly. Um, what were some of the big things about the business that you said, okay, now that I have this, I, I want to make some changes? What, what, like, what were the key things that you focused on? As I think about it, um, you know, a business is, is like a book. There's, there's chapters, right? You know, I think the, the, the transitional part of the book and the chapters that went along with that when I came on the scene was, um, I noticed that we had 24 private rooms and 24 semi-private rooms. And you have to understand that um, up till uh, recently, 
most of the nursing homes uh, had semi-private rooms, two, two persons in a room. And we were one of the few facilities that had, you know, a third of our rooms were private rooms. And I noticed that people would come and they'd stay in the semi-private room. Um, but right away when they came in the door, they wanted that private room. Um, and they were willing to stay in the semi-private room until uh, a private room became available. And sometimes that would be a long time. But, you know, it didn't take a rocket scientist, and I certainly aren't one of those, to, to, to figure out, uh, hey, we need more private room. What's going on with this private room thing? And, you know, when you pulled that apart a little bit more, there were other things that went along with that that, you know, are commonplace today that didn't exist then. You know, one of the things that I saw was uh, cable TV, right? Was Everybody has cable TV or satellite or whatever now. But, um, you know, I said to my father, I said, we need to get cable TV in here. And he said, for what? <laughs> they got of, three channels? <laughs> yeah. You know, there were a lot of uh, conversations that went back and forth like that. And, um, you know, as time went along, we became more and more uh, alert to the needs of the uh, the buyer, who actually uh, is the son or the daughter who comes to, you know, look at your place. It's typically not the the resident that you're caring for, they have uh, a situation where they're unable to, they're in the hospital or they're in some other situation. And it's the, the son or the daughter usually that comes looking for a place and they want to be attended to too. And that doesn't go too well in a semi-private room with a folding chair. Um, you come to visit, you want a little privacy. It doesn't work out so well. So in the early days, it, were, it was those kinds of things that you know, I saw going on and you have to understand that back, uh, in the, you know, while I was growing up in, in the business in the seventies and the early eighties, and it still is true today the the nursing home was perceived as this horrible, uh, prison like place, you know, where people were not treated well. And it goes all the way back to the county home and, and, you know, before there were nursing homes, that was the only nursing home around was a county home, and it was referred to as a poorhouse. I think if you go all the way back, oh, wow. that's sure. where this whole thing started. And up till even today, it's difficult for us to shake that, uh, you know, image. It's, you know, do anything, but don't take me to the nursing home, um, you know, kind of conversation around the yeah. dinner table that we try to get away from. So anyway, all that being said, it says you need to improve that image. You need to improve that brand. You need to bring it to uh, a situation where it's more normal towards everyday life, bringing in amenities and pieces that are familiar to people. And so that is really the main component all along of what I've tried to do uh, during my career. It's been, what, 35 years now that I've been at this Um trying to bring things to the table that connect people to the uh, environment that they're used to, make them still contributors to the family and to their society to the extent that we can, and, and make them feel that they're still connected with you know what's going on outside the four walls of the facility. So mm. 
lot of words there, but I, I think it gives you a sense of, uh, of what drives us, you know, to be different. And we've we've never uh, lost sight of who the boss is or who who my boss is or who who's driving. It's the client, it's the patient, it's the son and the daughter. It's not the regulator who comes in and. You know, a lot of places lose sight of that, and they run, they run the facility by regulation, and they're they're not as successful as they could be. Hmm. Well, it's uh, the regulations are the bare minimum, aren't they? I mean, regulations are there just to define what's bad. A regulation, in my mind, doesn't really define what's good. It just says anything below this line is bad. Now, you could go way above this line and do way better, but regulations aren't. You know, the nature of them are just to keep things from being bad. And if that's your focus, then you're kind of focused on the wrong goal, it sounds like. Yeah, and it can be a cop-out, too, because it's easy for a, a nurse or a mid-level or even myself to say, well, that's not allowed, you know, and blame uh, the health department for everything, right? Sure. Like, uh, <laughs> you, you know, it was it, uh, just one example, a story, uh, you know, uh, over time, it probably started in the in the late 80s and kept growing and growing into the 90s. As I looked into the, the med room, it, it started to look more like a bar than it did like a med room um, because the families would say, well, mom, you know, mom enjoys a Manhattan at 4 o'clock <laughs> or 7 o'clock every night, and we don't want to take that away. Can you, can you take care of her on that? And then the next one would come in, uh, you know, tangry and tonic every night for her and we don't want to take that away. So you look in the med room and there's all these bottles of liquor and, you know, a couple of cases of Genesee or whatever. And, and so, again, uh, I look at that and I say, a bar. We need a bar. <laughs> so I go to the local health department and I, I say, uh, we're, we're going to get a liquor license. They didn't know what to do. Nobody ever had come to them with that request before, so they kicked it upstairs to the uh, folks in Albany where the boss is down there, and, and they didn't know what to do either. They wanted all these letters from my medical director. How were we going to limit the amount that <laughs> oh. people had? And you know, they're not fourteen; they're eighty-six. You know, um, and it just—it was unbelievable, and you know. I don't know who finally made the decision, but I had to get a lawyer involved and, and the liquor authority and all this. And it took probably a year and a half. Um, and now we have two bars and a full liquor license. We've had it for 10 years, and, and uh, it's been a joyous situation. Nobody's ever gotten hurt. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, usually a glass of booze is a joyous occasion and in any circumstance. Well, it's interesting because... There's this theme I'm I'm hearing, uh, you know, and just fast forward, like, and I'll get to the theme in a second, but you've got not only two bars, like you've got a sports bar. So now, like, family members can come and hang out with a loved one, watch a ball game, have a beer. It's like they're hanging out at home or going out and having some time together versus I feel like I'm sitting in a hospital room. You know, how quickly can I get out of here? I've got to pay my, my uh, dues here with mom, and then I'm out. I, I want to just back up because there's this theme that I alluded to, and that is you said the phrase alert to the needs of the buyer and you know you're talking about going to private rooms you're talking about adding the liquor license and even having to go to war to get that approval 
I would imagine in your industry, that's not common. I know from my research, nursing homes kind of evolved out of hospitals. And they they have, to this day, for the most part, I mean, there's been a lot of advances and there's some great, you know, Maplewood's the best in our in our town, but I know there are other good nursing homes out there. Um, but it would be easy to keep that institutional clinical model and just not think about the needs of the customer. You know, in the hospital, it's really about fixing people up and getting them out the door. They're not always thinking about customer experience or what does the customer want. I can't get a latte while I'm in the emergency waiting room, but I can when I'm waiting for my car to be worked on. And you've taken this idea of being alert to the needs of the buyer and applied it to your industry. So that's like an innovative perspective for your industry. The question I have, I guess, where I'm going with all this is, do you go through a process of research so you observe something it, you know, do you go through further research or is it more gut for you? You just see it and you think, okay, there's something here and I have a gut feeling. I would say it's mostly gut. Um, and I, you know, I trust the people that uh, uh, work here, my team. Um, you know, we're transparent enough and we've known each other long enough that when I come out with something really crazy, they, I can tell by the look in their eye, even if they say yes, it's a sure. no. You know? So if it's, if it's really crazy and, and we might come back to it, you know, six months, uh, we might bring it up again and it's not so crazy. Things yeah. change so fast yeah. these days out there that w- what once was crazy, you know, in a couple months isn't crazy anymore. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a thumbs up or thumbs down forever. I think you have to keep looking, you know, at this stuff and, uh, you know, whether it's a car dealership or, or ice cream, st- you have to, uh, change always. If you're not changing, you're dying. I, I really believe in, mm. in that, um, particularly in this business, because both the person who's making the purchase, the son or the daughter or the uh, resident who needs the service, they're in a different generation. Um, they, they they have different needs, wants, desires, and you have to identify, you know, what those are. As you go back to uh, what you mentioned about the clinical model, I, it, it <laughs> history has a funny way of repeating itself because we started you know, back in the 50s, let's say, and in, in 60s, these homes, nursing homes, lived up and down Lake Avenue in the city of Rochester. And they were basically mansions, former mansions of Kodak executives that uh, were uh, abandoned or sold. And they were taken over as uh, and turned into, remodeled and turned into to nursing homes where they take care of Maplewood, started out as a 28-bed uh, nursing home located in a uh, uh, former Kodak executive mansion. So when you think of mansion, that gives you an image of what a nursing home was like. It went to the medical model because they were perceived at that time in the late 60s and 70s as modern, nice, the way to go. They used the hospital model because they didn't have any other model to use. They knew they didn't want to take on the model of the uh, mansion, right? Uh, right. Remind you of the Munsters or something, right? It's not that. <laughs> it's uh, you know, let's go to a clinical model that 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 looks good, and so that that lasted throughout time. But now you see it going back again to uh, 
uh, smaller facilities. You, you know, one good example is you look over at the Jewish home. I think it's $72 million they spent over there to uh, unload the tower and create three cottages, um, three neighbor, three buildings with three neighborhoods in each building with, I think, a dozen people in each neighborhood. So you've gone back to the small model again. Um, mm. And so it's really interesting to see because that's what people want. That's what families want. They want the smaller. They want common areas to visit. They don't want the clinical. It's been proven that you uh, heal and recover better in a home-like you know, environment. So now the hospital model is kind of going out the window again, and we're, we're going back to where we, we kind of started. Not exactly, but, uh, you know, in that direction. Sure. Uh, for for listeners that are not in the Rochester area, the Jewish home we have a we have a pretty large Jewish population here in Rochester, and um, there's a really well regarded uh, not just nursing home. They have uh, uh, yeah, they've got senior living, they've got assisted living, they've got home care, they've got daycare, they've got just about everything. So that, right, they've got everything, and if you were to drive by. Uh, they've got this really prominent, maybe seven or more story, big kind of hospital style building. And they have been doing construction over the last year or two, so they can now have these more intimate cottage style set up on the campus versus this big uh, seven story hospital that they've been providing their services out of. So it's uh, it's remarkable and you can't miss it. Even if you don't know what's going on, you've seen all this construction. It's... Um, it's interesting to see the changes, Greg, and in, in the innovation that you've been able to get ahead of the curve on. And I think in the second half of this discussion, I want to talk a little bit about that. But where do you see, uh, before we get to that, where do you see, like, what's next? You're talking about going full circle, but from where you're sitting, what's next for your industry? I hear a lot of people complaining, uh, people who have been in the business a long time, and um, I, I hope I never get to that point. But, I, you know, I see it differently. I, I think this is the most exciting uh, time to be uh, in this business for a lot of reasons. Uh, for one, you've got the, I guess it's called the boomer generation, right? The baby boomers coming down the pike. And that generation, the I think it's 1946 or 45 or 46 to uh, 1963 is who's categorized in that generation. So you're going to have... Uh, sons and daughters on one end of that and uh, residents, patients, uh, people, their their parents in that same generation. We've never had that before. Um, mm. it, it's, it's really interesting when you think about it. And the numbers that are coming down the pike, just look at the numbers. If we started building as many nursing homes as we possibly could starting today, we couldn't build them fast enough to be able to from an institutional standpoint, uh, get our arms around all the care that's going to be needed um, for for this generation, you know, coming down the pike. So my view is the Amazons, the Walmarts, the Googles of the world are going to uh, see that opportunity and they're going to come in and they're going to create things that we haven't even imagined um, mm. as far as... Uh, putting together a care model and you know as far as the government having their arms around this thing and holding it tightly and embracing it and not letting it go i i don't know how that can happen i mean there's just the scale of what's coming down the pike is just so incredibly large 
that they couldn't hire enough inspectors and, uh, uh, you know, um, <laughs> overseers to be able to, sure. to, to handle all this. Um, so it's challenging on one hand, but I think it's exciting on the other. Um, what you've seen in, in other areas, it's, I call it the Pepsi generation. If you watch what's happened, the wave that's happened since uh, uh, that generation were kids and the, the, the schools that needed to be built and the, as they moved along, the, the colleges and university expansion and then the, the uh, corporate America and all that went along with that, car sales and, and suburbs and, you know, you saw that wave rippling through society and the response that went along with it. Well, now they're on my doorstep and how is my profession going to respond to that? And I use that word profession broadly because it goes well beyond a, a nursing home, a, a building or an institution. It's how is how is healthcare going to deal with that? I think that's really exciting. My guest today is Greg Chambry. He's the CEO and administrator of the Maplewood a uh, distinctly different nursing home in Webster, New York, in the Rochester area. Check them out if you get a minute, because I think it'll add some context to our discussion. If you go to visit Maplewood, visit maplewood.com, a lot of photography and some video there, and you can get a sense and a flavor for uh, the Maplewood, and you'll realize this really isn't like a nursing home. So take a minute, uh, check out Greg's business at visitmaplewood.com. We're going to break for a quick message, but we will be back with more in just a moment. Hey, folks, thanks for joining me today on this episode of The Currency. I hope you're enjoying yourself as much as I am. We're going to get right back to our guest in a moment. But before we do, I just want to take this opportunity to invite you to become a subscriber to The Currency. You can find this podcast on Apple iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. You can hit the subscribe button there, and then this show will be delivered to you every week, fresh, hot, right out of the oven, to your listening device of choice. Go over to those platforms now and subscribe if you haven't already. And if you really want to do me a solid, if you want to help this show grow, then leave a review while you're there. Leaving a review lets your favorite platform know that this is a show worth paying attention to and a show worth promoting to other people. So if you take a moment, leave a review, maybe give me a handful of stars, leave a few comments and let folks know what you love about the currency. That would be so helpful. So guys, thanks again for your time. I'm glad for this audience. I'm grateful for you guys. And I'm excited about what we're growing here together on The Currency. So without further ado, let's get back to our show. And we're back. My guest today is Greg Chambry, the CEO and administrator of The Maplewood. And uh, glad to have Greg along today. We've been talking a little bit about his entrepreneurial journey, a fair amount about his industry and the, the nuances of regulation and, and how he, as an owner and administrator, has kind of shifted the model, whereas he's, he's alert to the needs of his customers, the family members and residents of the Maplewood, and how that's driven some innovations and changes for them. Uh, welcome back, Greg. I want to I get into um, some shifts that I've noticed. We've worked together for about a decade now. And when I first started working with you, the typical model, I think, for you and for everyone in the industry was, you know, the hospital might have someone, an elderly person, let's say they've had a fall or 
you know, they're in the hospital for some reason and they've said to the family member, hey, your, your mom, she really shouldn't go home. It's time for her to go to a nursing home. And then they're presented with a list of homes. The social worker at the hospital say, here's five or 10 different homes you might want to check out. And they would just list a bunch of local that they thought might fit. And then you'd get a phone call. And then the kind of game was on to say, was this a good fit for us? And so on. And, you know, then you'd hopefully have a bed for that person. But that model's changed a little bit. Do you want to share some of the dynamic around that? Because I think this gets at maybe some of the things you've done around the brand that I'd like to talk about in, in just a moment. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that I need to use as, as some basis um, so that your audience is on the same page uh, when I talk about these things. A lot of people don't consider what's going to happen if they ever need this kind of care. It, it's the old adage, it'll never happen to me, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so they don't really... You know, you wouldn't think about going to apply for a job and, and not talking about what the health care benefit is. You know, um, you know, do I get Blue Cross and Blue Shield, Excellus, MVP? What, you know, what, what do I get? What's the menu of benefits? But when it comes to, you know, long-term care, people kind of avoid it. And, and whether it's just kind of closing it off in their mind or they think something uh, different, um, Really, you have to pay attention to this uh, and and understand what, where you're going to be left um, should you need this kind of care. Just a couple basic things. There's uh, Medicaid is basically the safety net. In other words, if you're without uh, any kind of funds and you need care, uh, you don't have any. Uh, uh, you're under 65. Um, so you're not eligible for Medicare, um, and you're uh, institutionalized to the extent that Medicare, even if you have Medicare, Medicare in a nursing home will only pay for up to 100 days, which is, you know, three months or so. Right. Uh, if you go what's, beyond, what's the average? What's the average stay of a, a nursing home resident? Well, these days it's, uh, you know, if they don't have the rehab component where people are constantly going in and out a lot, it's a it's a couple years. It's yeah, a couple so, years. It's, it's, so that three months is a drop in the bucket. Yeah, so you have three months, and then you're up against a couple years. And if you don't have any funding, then the you know uh, Medicaid is the only payer. They call it the payer of last resort is Medicaid. So you know, there's Medicaid, there's Medicare, which I mentioned will only cover you for up to a hundred days. So if you go to the hospital, you break your hip, and you. Uh, uh, have the need to uh, come to a skilled nursing facility, they will continue to cover you up to now. 100 days is the maximum. I'm not saying you're going to get 100 days. You may get four days. You may get five days. It all goes according to uh, how uh, you are recovering for whatever you went to the hospital for. In the case of a broken hip, if you continue to walk further from 10 feet to 15 feet the next day, 20 feet the next day, Medicare will continue to cover you because they see a progression in your recovery. But if you stall out, if you will, for a period of time at, say, 70 feet and you can't walk anymore, then you're considered what they call custodial or kind of maintenance, if you will, care. And at that point, uh, Medicare uh, will no longer cover you. If it's two weeks, that's all you're going to get. So, um 
you have to pay attention to that and, and understand that um, those programs, Medicaid isn't uh, in all cases the best because Medicaid pays the skilled nursing facility much, much less um, than uh, Medicare or uh, a private paying you know, situation. And quite frankly, uh, nursing homes cannot run on 100% Medicaid uh, payment. There has to be a mix there to be able to keep the doors open and, and pay people properly and deliver, you know, care with a basic menu of uh, uh, things that people need to to exist. So Medicaid is frowned upon, you know, by nursing homes because it doesn't pay the bill. In fact, in New York State, on average, Medicaid pays $25 less than it costs a facility on average uh, to keep the doors open. So that gives you some idea how low the Medicaid payment is. So that's a bit of baseline information. And, and it matters when you uh, are considering whether you want to uh, purchase long-term care insurance. Again, I said, in, uh, uh, you know, when you're in the working world, you want Blue Cross and Blue Shield. You want Excellus. You want some kind of insurance because if you run without it and you get taken to the hospital, that bill can be astronomical and there's no coverage. Same right. thing goes for long-term care. You, you really want to consider, you know, how you're going to pay for that. Some people who are well off aren't worried about it. You know, they, they figure they can handle uh, that for a couple of years. Other people, you know, want to be able to pick what facility they, they uh, might want to go to and they want to have that long-term care insurance backup so that when a facility, you know, asks you who's going to pay the bill, you can mention you have long-term care insurance or private assets, and that's looked, um, you know, favorably compared to somebody who has has none. Um, so, <clears throat> again, I don't want to get any deeper than that, but you have to understand where the payers come from and, and how a nursing home, you know, kind of survives. Um, the other thing is, uh, again, comparing what was and what is. It used to be that the hospital social workers were the only people who would determine once you were done in the hospital what facility you went to. They'd make referrals out and, um, you know, they'd have their favorites, if you will, or uh, uh, there would be situations where a facility would specialize in one type of thing versus another, or it was said that this facility does better with this type of clinical condition than the other one. And, and the social workers would be the determining hinge pin, if you will, of where the flow of patients came out of the hospital and what, what facilities they went to. That's changed um, because more and more the third-party payers, be it Excellus, be it NVP, uh, be it uh, United, they are all taking over the Medicare benefit that was traditionally straight Medicare for people they take over the benefit for Medicare, and they give you a free gym, gym membership. They give you other kinds of things when you're a, a younger senior. Um, that 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 is fine, and it and it looks good. But the main difference between traditional Medicare and those kind of programs is it's that insurer who's deciding whether they keep paying or not. Not your physician. Under traditional Medicare, your physician would be the one who would say. They need to continue to be uh, covered and in the nursing home, whereas if it's Excellus or MVP, 
it's Excellus or MVP who determines whether uh, they continue to, you know, pay the Medicare benefit, if you will. So it's not just the hospital social workers anymore. If, you know, if it's determined that you want to go to a facility and you call MVP and they say, well, according to the clinical record that we're reading here, we think you can go home with PT. You know, your 87-year-old wife can change your bandages and take care of you. And in some cases that works, but in other cases that I've seen, it doesn't work. And the, the idea of somebody, uh, you know, going home uh, after a acute episode in the hospital, and even family members will say, this is ridiculous. Um, you know, this, in some cases, you know, I go so far as to say it's not safe. Again, um, that may be a little excessive, but that's how things have changed out there. And I know I'm getting into the weeds on this, and it's difficult to understand it all, but you have to have some baseline knowledge, some baseline understanding as you get older and you get exposed to these kind of situation of, of what you're up against. So, but you as a business, historically, I mean, that being the case and the way the system works, you as a business would just, in a sense, kind of wait for that phone call or the fax machine back in the day to send over, hey, we've got a person for you that's interested. Like, you know, the way that you found your customers, just to speak in business terms, um, was more passive. You weren't going out looking for them as much as they were coming to you. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, back in the day, there was the nursing home and that was it. You didn't have all these different, uh, uh, places, different you know, yeah. uh, dementia facilities, uh, Alzheimer's units, uh, uh, senior apartments where there's some oversight, uh, assisted living, uh, home care, None of that existed, so the the pipe was always full, and they right. uh, everybody was happy. You never saw any nursing home ads or uh, senior care ads on TV or the radio or newspaper. Uh, none of that happened because when one person left, there was always another person to come. Um, sure, but now there's of, so many choices. Yeah, and that's kind of where I was going with that question: is that you know, your business has changed. I think it's analogous, like all kinds of people, regardless of what industry they're in. And this goes, you know, what you're bringing up is that line that you've got to kind of balance between the regulatory aspect nature of your industry and the fact that you are a for-profit entity, you're a business. And, um, and you've got to navigate, like, how do people pay and can they afford and what vehicles can they use and what vehicles can I, can I accept? Like, if you were only accepting Medicare Medicaid, you wouldn't be able to keep your lights on just because it doesn't pay enough. And not just for luxury environment, but it doesn't pay enough just to keep nurses on staff. So as an owner, you've got to navigate a little bit more, I think, than the average person. But there's this analogous piece for any entrepreneur where it's like the model's changed. I used to get customers a certain way, and now the environment, the competitive landscape is different. My consumer, uh, my customers changed in their their uh, preferences and what they want out of my service or product. And the way that I find them is different. You know, have all these different platforms. So clearly that's been a big thing for you. How have you navigated that? What things have you had to deal with in that changing environment to find customers? Well, we've, we've had to go far beyond um, the kind of minimal. We talk about uh, that we've known each other now for 10 years. And, you know, I can remember 
you know, when we first got together, I was doing a lot of newspaper uh, uh, ads. I was doing radio. Uh, Which was innovative at the time, wasn't some it? Some TV. Yeah, it was innovative. Uh, no one else in your industry was doing that. Spent a lot of time and effort, uh, you know, doing that. Because for us, it's always been about, um, they say around town here that they were the best kept secret in Webster. I think it's a little bit about geography. We're kind of tucked away. Uh, down off Main Street, and people drive by, you know, a hundred times a month, and and you know, kind of don't see us or don't recognize us like McDonald's on the corner. So that that's a challenge for us. Um, so thus the the TV, the radio, uh, the print, you know, kind of advertising. But we found that that uh, with the advent of the internet and the way people were watching, you know, beginning to watch TV and you know, 10 years later today, it's dramatically different from what it was. You know, I was just remarking to somebody last night, I and it struck me, I watch TV so much differently now. You know, I watch what I want to watch, and I don't have to, you know, be inside at 8 o'clock to watch whatever. <laughs> Dukes, Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the way people consume media today is just so much different than it used to be. And if you're not sure. alert and if you're not watching that or you don't have a professional to help you understand, I mean, I can run a nursing home pretty well, but I am not a marketing you know, person. And, and you need to really have somebody to lean on to, to help you through that that whole thing. The other thing I'd say is four years ago, it's almost five years ago now, um, I had to, you know, I had one of those moments where do I want to stay in this business or don't I? Um, Because Hmm. as an entrepreneur, I did it once before back in 99 when I first bought the building. I knew that those 24 semi-private rooms and and 24 private rooms were not going to hold up. So I, you know, I found some bankers uh, crazy enough to lend me uh, the money to double the size, double the footprint of the building and uh, unbundle those uh, 24 semi-private rooms and build uh, 22 additional, you know, rooms so we could get people out of those semi-private rooms and, and have an all private facility. So at Really put it all up on the table, you know, personal guarantees, um, you know, the whole bit that you hear about. And it was it was interesting for my family, too, because we got together as a family and said, look, they could take everything from us if this doesn't work out. And um, it was really tight um, going into it uh, once we, you know, had that debt load. Um, we had to obviously get more employees. We had more square footage to cover another nursing unit. Um, it took it took a lot of effort and and really a, lo- a lot of bravery to be honest with you to to do and this. The, you know? And there was no one that you could look at at least locally and say, well, the, you know, Joe down the street, it's working for him. I'm going to copy him. This this was new. Nobody. You did were that. really. They you're just I was jumping crazy. off a cliff. And, and yeah. Anybody I talked to in my association thought I was absolutely nuts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But I had a feeling that the market was there, and it it took a while, to be honest with you, to to, to fill those rooms and, and get people to understand because we couldn't get people, you know, it's it's like when you have records and they come out with CDs, nobody has a player, nobody knows what a CD is. It's the same kind of thing, you know, you, 
once we got people to the door and they saw it, we got the oohs and ahs and we heard them and, and they, they, they said, this is the place for mom and, and we would get people to come in. But so that happened once for me. Uh, now it was probably 30 years ago that I did that. And I had that same feeling four years ago. When I looked at what we started with, I said we started with uh, 24 semi-private rooms and 24 private rooms. Well, uh, five years ago, we still had the private rooms that we started with. And I look at these rooms and the square footage of the rooms and the ability to care for the people in those rooms just was not there. And, and it struck me that if I wanted to stay in this business, I had to do something about changing those rooms um, and and staying in that business. So uh, we basically did the same thing. We, we, we've gone at it again and, you know, doubled the debt, uh, doubled the square footage and did the same thing we did back in 99 and really come at this fresh again. And now we have a, a freshened product uh, where people come in and, and there's nothing like it. Very, yeah, very gracious, like very contemporary, elegant. I mean, it's, you know, these are all super, superlatives, but you know, this is, uh, it is dramatic. And it's interesting. You said earlier in the discussion, if you're not changing, if you're just sitting still, you're actually falling behind. And, you know, you could have rested on, hey, you know, 20 years ago, we redid these rooms. I've got all private. Uh, is there any other facility that's all private in our region, in our market? Uh, close. I don't think uh, there is. Um, I don't think it's a hundred percent. So no. you could even today say, "Well, we're still the only all private." But you, but you felt that that uh, anxiety or tension that an entrepreneur feels. It's like I've got to make a change. Yeah, and you, and you dove in. Wow. And anybody looking at it, again, both times you get a, a CFO looking at it, and you know they they tell you, "Well, we're, we're doing okay. We can hang in there." I mean, I'm. I'm right. in my later 50s, and I could have slid through to the end here and probably gotten along fine, but uh, we've always been a leader, and uh, I always want to be a leader. Um, I don't want to run an average facility. I, I want to run the best facility I can, and if that means I'm doing what we just did, got to do it. Um, so, um, you know. It, it, I it, think it, that gets ahead. at yeah, I didn't, didn't mean to interrupt you, but that gets at a deeper thing. We've talked about this before in other conversations, but you know, you, an entrepreneur is bringing who they are to the business. At least they should. And if they're not, you know, there's something wrong there. So I remember we had a discussion, and it was something around the lines of like, well, let's say you didn't have a nursing home. Let's say you, you know, were doing lawn business or a contractor or a dentist, whatever that thing was. You know, how would you approach it? And the answer was, I'd do it with the same kind of philosophy and attitude that I bring to the Maplewood. I'd have to be innovative. I'd have, to, I'd want it to be premium, top of the line. And that really gets at, well, that's who Greg Chambry is. That's what motivates you and drives you. And I think that leads to the success because people see that. You know, they talk about authenticity all the time in a brand. It should be authentic. I get kind of tired of that because I feel like, you know, you could be a schmuck. You could be an authentically schmucky person. That's not necessarily good. But um, you are bringing a part of your, like when people walk in the door, they may not know it, but they're engaging an element of, of your values when they, when they see the work that you do. And you're sitting here saying, yeah, I could have coasted to the end, but that's just not your nature. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and you know, one, one important 
piece that goes along with that that's very challenging. I think that a lot of people that I run into who are entrepreneurs and owners um, is how do you take that uh, philosophy, that culture, that thing, if you will, um, and how do you explain that to the team that you work with? And how do you mm. how do you move that ball forward? How do you um, uh, define that in a way that's understandable for people? Um, because you know nowadays uh, you can't be everywhere. And as organizations get bigger, you start from a you start out of your garage, right, and you build something, and then you, you go lease a building somewhere, and then you and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. How do you take that philosophy that uh, that began the company, and how do you how do you spin that forward? You look at Wegmans. I mean, how does a place like that take that philosophy of Bob Wegman back in the day, right, and and now his kids and and his and their kids? How does that translate to to the people who, you know, are working in that store? And that's very deliberate. It takes a lot of uh, time and effort and structure to be able to take that philosophy and have that re- represented not only in Rochester now, but all over the country. They're up and down the eastern seaboard. That takes a lot of effort, and I'll tell you, it, it's something that I wasn't used to in the old days. There's none of that. It was with the WW2 generation, right? It's You were told to stand in the corner on one foot and you didn't ask why. Well, nowadays, the people coming to you, they want to know the why. They want to know, why do you want me to do that, you know? And, 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 and you need them to be able to uh, operate independently without getting instruction all the time. So you have to bring structure and that philosophy to the table in a way that everybody gets it. How have you, how have you done that in your own organization? Cause you've gone from a handful of beds to you've tripled the size of the business, the triple the size of the beds, which you have to go through a whole regulatory process to do that. But you've grown not only the physical square footage, but the number of people you're serving, the services that you provide, your employees, your uh, uh, pool is much larger. How have you done exactly what you're saying you have to do in your organization? We've adopted a philosophy or a culture that we call the Maplewood Way, and it's got um, uh, a basic tenant to it that says, my best for you. Um, and when you think of my best for you, um, whether you're looking at a fellow employee or a teammate and saying, I'm going to give you my best, or you're looking at a family member, or you're looking at a regulator, or you're looking at anybody, that kind of captures what we're all about here. My best for you. We don't want, mm. you know, <laughs> it's funny. I got another story, excuse me, but I I went up to one of my teammates one time and it, he knew he did a shoddy job and I knew it. And <laughs> all I said to him was, is that the best you could have done? And he kind of looked at the ground and he said, No. <laughs> Well, we've all been there. <laughs> we've all been there. But, but you didn't have yeah. to. You didn't have to dictate to him. You didn't have to write him up. You he owned it. You just had to said. Is it? You had to ask him. Is this your best? Yeah. That actually gives him a chance to say no. I could do better. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that changed. That's powerful. That changed my relationship with him forever. Um, hmm. You know, for the better. Sure. For the better. Where there's a trust level there that that wasn't there before and. Um, it's just a it's a great thing when you when you you know it's like in golf when you hit that sweet spot it, it just there's nothing well, this, like it 
This goes back to the concept of simplicity in the midst of complexity, that you've taken a very simple concept. And I think it's funny because sometimes we're looking for this mind-blowing concept that's going to just, if we can come up with this really clever thing, it's going to blow people away. But my best for you is very basic. And I mean that in a good way. It's a primal, like a mother is doing her best for her child. Uh, Ideally, a husband's doing his best for his wife. Like this is a very deep thing that we do when we love each other. We give each other our best. Now, you're not putting love and all that into your, your marketing material, your HR product, but but you're telling people, this is how we operate here. We give our best. Simple idea, but so powerful. Yeah, and again, I think the, sim- the simplicity of it is, <clears throat> when you think about it, ideally, you'd like people working in an organization who all think alike, who all act alike. Um, not, you know, there's diversity uh, makes things interesting. And, and, and I'm not saying there shouldn't be any diversity. But yeah, it's about a, clones, at, yeah. At a, at a basic <laughs> level. Uh, you can tell when somebody joins an organization whether they're going to last or not, right? There's a culture there, and they either fit or they don't fit. And, um, you know, it's important that you have people who fit. Um, and, and Got to be aligned, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, it's just as important when you're interviewing and when you're talking to people um, at the front end that they – that they understand that, that they understand what you're about. So as an employer, we take a lot of time on interviews to tell what tell people what the expectation is, what they're going to get when they come here, because we don't want to waste their time and ours and, and have a bad hire, you know. So right. it's really important to be able to show them something, um, talk to other people who work here, and, and try as much as possible to make sure it's a good fit, because a bad hire it's just bad all the way around for the person yeah. coming in and in the organization. Yeah, and, and the customers that you're serving. Mm-hmm. Greg, we're getting to the end of our uh, time here. I want to ask you two more quick questions. The first one is, what are you most proud of as, a, as an entrepreneur? Um, you know, what are you most proud of that, th- that you've accomplished in your career? Um, I'm most proud of my kids. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I, I I I see that spirit. I mean, they got most of that from their mother, but your wife is a wonderful woman, so that that's well said. But I think I think your kids have two great parents. Yeah, I I, I see that uh, uh, in my kids that they're um, you know one one is uh, the oldest has proven himself to be a lot like me. Uh, an unbelievable entrepreneur. And uh, again, mm. the third apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree. So <laughs> I see that going on. But uh, the the other two are, are, are in their own way, um, just as successful. And uh, so that, that's the, that's the proudest thing I think is, is, you know, having kids that are pointed in the right direction and, and, uh, and seemingly are, are doing just fine. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I I know your daughter is doing really well. She's killing it in the agency world and has gone up the ranks very quickly with a lot of responsibility. Your son, your your youngest, is in college still. It's cool because you grew up in an entrepreneurial family in the environment of an entrepreneur. You've seen your parents, put, you know, put their uh, security and future on the line for the Maplewood when they owned it, and um, and your kids have grown up watching you in in a similar circumstance and that's 
produce something in the family. So that's really awesome. And uh, I guess the last thing I would ask, Greg, is if you had advice, one piece of advice for anybody running a business, what would that, I, mean, I think there's been a lot of good stuff in here already, but what's the one thing you'd say, hey, um, this is the one piece of advice I'd share for anybody in business? Don't do it for the money. Um, you've got to absolutely be committed 100% to uh, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to be in business yourself. And if you're kind of lukewarm about it, um, I'm not saying there's not failures along the way because there certainly is. I've had more failures than I've had successes, and that's just part of the game. Um, hmm. you got to get used to that. But you got to love it. Um, and, 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 you know, I hear that people talk about life balance, work, you know, work and, and the rest. And to me, that that doesn't make any sense. I mean, uh, it's a lifestyle. <laughs> sure. You, yeah. you, you have to know what you're signing on for and don't... Um, don't let the commercials and the things you read in the magazine, um, you know, leave you starstruck. So you got to love it, and uh, you got to be committed uh, to what's going on, and just don't do it for the money. It's fantastic. My guest today has been Greg Shambry, the CEO, administrator, and owner of the Maplewood. Uh, make sure to check out Greg's business online. You can go to visitmaplewood.com. You can also find Greg on LinkedIn. I know he posts articles from time to time and we'll connect with you there. Just uh, search for Greg Shambry. That's C-H-A-M-B-E-R-Y on LinkedIn and you'll find Greg there. Greg, fantastic discussion. Thank you for sharing both your experiences as an entrepreneur, as an owner in a highly regulated industry and uh, and just some of these discussions around values and, and branding and uh, innovating. So thank you for being a guest on The Currency today. It's been fun, Mike. Thanks a lot. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Folks, thanks again for listening. I'm glad you joined us. If you found this interesting, make sure to subscribe. You can find The Currency on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, everywhere that fine podcasts are provided. And you can follow me too. You can catch me on Twitter at Mike Gaston. You can catch me on YouTube, LinkedIn, and uh, you can visit my site as well, MikeGaston.com. Until next time, love you guys, and we'll talk to you soon.